Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Voices for Change. In this episode, we will discuss issues that were highlighted in our Bridging the Gap report, which aimed at understanding immigrant women and their labor market integration within the greater Toronto area. Today's topic is understanding microaggressions. We found that 60% of women who participated in our survey have experienced some form of microaggressions in their workplace. My name is Preet Kiran Sandhu, and I'm the manager of employer and stakeholder relations at TRIAC, and also a racialized immigrant woman. To discuss this important topic, I have today with me Nada Aude, public school educator and administrator, and Michael Kaneva, director of inclusion, diversity, and equity at OP Trust. Welcome to the podcast, Nada and Michael. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here. It's great to have you both on the show. And before we begin, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? We'll start with you, Nada. Okay. Hi, I'm Nada Audi. Um, I'm a, as uh, Preet said, I'm a public school educator, administrator, previously um, social policy and international development Um worker. <laughs> and uh, I too am a racialized woman, um, an immigrant. Uh, my family uh, moved to Canada at the end of my high school experience. So mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to complete high school and university here and uh, have worked both in Canada and internationally. Um, and I'm excited to be part of this conversation. I think that, uh, you know, thinking about topics related to immigrant women coming into the labor market um, needs to take into account both the public and private sector and what it means at different levels, uh, entering different ro- types of roles from leadership roles, as well as um you know, entry level positions and the impact that it has as you navigate and venture into these spaces. And I'm excited to be here with Michael and have this conversation. Great. Thank you. We'll move on to you, Michael. Thanks uh, so much. Um, uh, So uh, Michael Keneva, I have, um, I've been working in uh, organizational development slash organizational effectiveness most of my professional career. Uh, started out with um, this wonderful land of employee engagement. Uh, and it's through the lens of culture and organizations um, that I have been um, a strong proponent of, um, uh, of diversity in the workplace. And so my current title is uh, Director of Inclusion, Diversity and equity. Uh, We feel very strongly to put the word inclusion in front uh, due to the fact that having inclusive behaviors is how we don't just uh, uh, create a great workplace, but that diversity in terms of representation, in terms of new ideas, uh, really takes hold in an organization. uh, I, 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 I love this space. <laughs> I always have, um, particularly at just one point of reference I'll, I'll create is, uh, you know, back in the, the early 2000s, I was working for an IT company in Montreal. And it was a business to business sales organization that was having a really hard time retaining uh, employees. So I, I specifically and purposefully created um, a, a new immigrant 
plan to to bring in uh, people who are new to Canada. And I will tell you, the one outstanding trait that each and every one of these individuals brought forward was this resiliency. That has stayed with me my entire career. The amount of strength and passion and resiliency uh, and ideas and professionalism of our, our new Canadian who join us. Um, I think I, 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 businesses have so much opportunity to learn from this space. And it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, pleasure to be here with Nada. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm very excited about this because I know both your backgrounds are so uh, solid when it comes to talking about this topic. Uh, so without further ado, um, I'll get right into it. Just to highlight some points that came up in our Bridging the Gap report, uh, we found that about three in five employed immigrant women professionals have experienced workplace aggressions in various forms. Um, some of the things include being patronized, being told you speak English well, um, receiving excessive praise uh, for doing routine simple tasks, and it's um, it's funny because I have been at the receiving at the end of both of these, um, and I didn't know that it was happening at the time. Specifically, when it comes to accents, um, they have shown to shape perception of who really belongs to Canada. And I think that is the larger question that I would like to kind of address of belonging um, and the power dynamics related to that. Most of them, most of these uh, remarks, let's say, are subtle and difficult to detect. So can you please help us understand what are microaggressions and how can we identify them? So I'll first start with you, Nada. Well, I would say, you know, when we think about microaggressions, we need to, as you said, recognize that they tend to be ambiguous and subtle and that they happen daily without us really even automatically picking up on them. Um, they tend to be brief and they come out in all different forms, right? So they come out in the, the things that people say, but they also are in behavior. So um, the tone of voice that's used, the um, uh, facial expressions. Um, and, and I want to, uh, it's important to distinguish this because people are like, oh, so you want to then tone police people. And this is different than tone policing in that in tone policing, it is someone um, in a position of power um, basically policing, trying to control the expression by a person of a marginalized identity, um, by focusing on the way the th something has been said, you know, trying to manage the emotion that might be in it, whether it's there or not, <laughs> um, to then uh, dismiss what is being said. But what I'm talking about here in terms of facial expressions and uh, tone of voice is what you, you know, what you were expressing, Preet, in terms of the patronizing, um, the, um, you know, the, the eye rolls that sometimes happen or um, the, uh, you know, the little shrugs or facial expressions that we might encounter around anything. It could be the fact that um let's say you 
for myself, I am at, you know, I can think of times when I am taking religious uh, holidays, mm -hmm. right, which are embedded in my organization's policies. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's like, well, I'm not here tomorrow, because uh, it is our faith day. So I'll be away. And then, you know, the looks that go shooting across the room. Okay. Um, so it can be in in those little subtle things that, as you said, signal first inferiority, second lack of belonging, um, and indirectly hostility to your presence in this space, right? And then um, I would add it also. So in addition to the things that are said and the ways that are there said and the behaviors, there's also the culture of the workplace that we're talking about, and that can be. Um, Something that I've noticed a lot is in humor, the sense of humor that we have and the, the jokes that are made in the workspace and the things that we find funny, um, you know, talking about um, shows that we're watching that may be very problematic um, and have all kinds of stereotypes and doing that in front of individuals that hold those identities. And so th those are all ways that we might not even think about um, that microaggressions are being expressed in the workspace. And it doesn't really matter if they're intentional or not. Um, there's that expression, the road to hell is something paved. I'm never good with, with, good, in, with good intentions. Yeah, <laughs> right? you got it. Exactly. So it, uh, it actually doesn't matter if it's intentional or not. We know, according to the Human Rights Code in Ontario, that it's about impact. It's not about intention. So, um, you know, before I'm going to pause here, <laughs> uh, but I think that we really need to ask ourselves how how invested are we in this idea that we are good people with good intentions and that that should take priority over the impacts that we're having um, in our spaces, personal and professional. Michael, I'd love to hear your thoughts too. You have just triggered so many thoughts for me. Holy macaroni. Um, this is great. I love, I love the way you've, you've, you've positioned that, um, uh, you know, and, and um, one of the pieces that jumps out to me almost right away is, um, well, two things. One is our propension, our the way we we look at the world oftentimes is through a binary lens. Uh, what I mean what I mean by that is there's us and then them. There's mm. us and other. And our ability to recognize the shortfalls of binary thinking is one of the ways that we can start even looking at the other subject matter, which is unconscious bias. Uh, a lot of organizations focus on the training of unconscious bias. And I have to say it's got, a bit of a interesting vibe in in businesses because people say, oh yeah, 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 did that, did that course, did that course, you know, you know, and you know, it's nice, but who uses it? Without the understanding, Carol Dewick has done a lot of work in this area called growth mindset, and the one thing that she says is repetition is really critically important because if you're doing new, you know, this this neural network rewiring to look at yourself to understand what your behaviors are, such as how you're interacting with others, uh, it takes practice. Uh, you're not gonna get it right away. In fact, I say to people that I work with, I'm gonna put my foot in my mouth lots of times. Part of what I do, it's because uh, I'm learning as I go. Um, so so the, the understanding for unconscious bias is part of what creates these microaggressions. 
uh, our brain is actually taking in something like 40 million uh, inputs at any given time, but it can only process um, about 40 of those. And so your brain is actually trying to save energy all the time, which is why it has biases. It's trying to figure out like, how can I be really uh, economical with the amount of power that I have? So people rely on those biases. What we found out though, however, is the biases that have been around for centuries are no longer working for us. And that's what creates these unfortunate biases that uh, interact with people in the workplace, but also in terms of creating these microaggressions. Yeah. Um, uh, I uh, I love the impact versus intention comment that you made in that as well. Um, I watched this fantastic, uh, there's a, a, a LinkedIn learning, uh, I'm not sure if people have uh, opportunities to see that they have uh, a course on called um, Understanding Culturally Sensitive Conversations, and the facilitator talks about the difference between intent and impact, and she said, the way she describes it is like if you're in a cafeteria and you're walking along and you have a hot pot of coffee and you trip, you, you make a step that's unfortunately wrong. You're used to making this step, but there's something now in the way and you spill your tea and your coffee. And now it's on the leg of someone uh, who uh, who's sitting there and it hurts. And you go, I'm really sorry. I didn't intend for that to happen. So forth and so on. And then, you know, the, the person is, needs to go and do a meeting now and they've got coffee all over their their pants and um the the expression here is you know intent or not the impact has still happened and so uh the other piece that that we talk about when we're talking about call, uh, talking about microaggressions is uh the dripping tap effect which means that if you have been in a situation for for a long time and 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 when i'm speaking to different marginalized groups they all can resonate in terms of the repetition of some of these microaggressions and how it's through that repetition that builds this stronger and stronger awareness of when it's happening and uh, i'll give you an example so depending upon where you live depending upon what visible minority you might be uh, you walk into a, 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 a store and you could be followed around by people in this who own the store and and if it happens once or twice you think oh that's a bad store but when it happens repeatedly you are constantly facing the same presence, the same feeling of a microaggression about who you are and what you represent. And it becomes, uh, it be, it's that dripping tap effect. It builds up for you in a really strong and powerful way. Um, and, and, you know, the final point that I'll make is, is what you also mentioned about how people think, well, my intention was good. How could you take it in the wrong way? Um, we, I do a lot of work with a group called Catalyst, and they have this great expression that I, I will steal uh, gladly from them. The golden rule was treat others how you would like to be uh, treated. The platinum rule is treat others how they would like to be uh, treated. And that is one of the key areas that uh, we're trying to expand upon in the work uh, that we do with OP Trust and, and with our members as well. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, what I gather from what both of you all have just said is this um, thing about culture, right? 
I'm not only joining the workplace as a professional. I come with my many different identities and the culture that I bring to my workplace. Um, and that defines so much of our day-to-day interactions. So I think that um, uh, we can't only talk about microaggressions. I think there's a lot of importance to talk about um, intersectionality, um, but I would like to know more about what intersectionality means. Um, the things that were highlighted through this report were also that um, some of the other factors that people felt um, that made them feel discriminated at their workplace were their immigrant background, their race, their gender. And this also relates to uh, the thing around humor that you mentioned, Nada, because there are so many of these things that could come in one in a joke at a workplace. Um, Specifically, when we talk about women, um, they were even denied promotions because of their pregnancy. So there are a lot of factors that uh, make us who we are. And how can you shed some light on intersectionality and, um, you know, as it relates to the experience of microaggressions, if you can take me through some examples, maybe that would be uh, even more interesting or however you see it fit, basically. And if you could also define uh, intersectionality for our viewers, just to give them some context. And I'll leave it open to uh, Michael. You, We can begin with you first. Yeah. Sure thing. Um, microaggressions uh, and intersectionality, there is a lot of conversation. It is, a, I would say, a fascinating field to explore and how it's growing as well. So when we talk about intersectionality, I think I, as I introduced myself, I'm part of the LGBTQ community, plus I have multiple disabilities. That for me creates uh, an intersectionality of different factors of who I am. Um, if you are a uh, a, a woman of uh, who who is operating in an environment where there's a lot of men. Uh, and if perhaps, or or perhaps a, a, an organization that has a very strong uh, uh, background in 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 what may have been perceived as male-dominated fields, uh, you're already uh, seen as an other in that environment. But then if you tack on the fact that you are uh, from a particular ethnic minority or you're coming into the workplace with a specific visible disability that adds to the, uh, it adds to the way you're being perceived. And it's through this, the, these various different pages of viewing you that creates intersectionality. You, you have different sections to you of which people can perceive you in different ways and in different lights. And by virtue of that, in many cases, there are barriers in place for each of those identities of which you then are subject to. Um, I mentioned Catalyst Organization previously. They have done some amazing work in an area called uh, emotional tax. And what they mean by emotional tax is, as I mentioned earlier, that you know when when you have an individual who's gotten the dripping tap effect and they're constantly being faced with some very specific. Uh, 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 microaggressions that have since compounded into this awareness of when, you know, every time I walk into a room, I look around for it. Mm. Well, imagine if you are a disabled uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, Asian woman, uh, I mean, you've got four specific 
criteria that makes you uh, um, have potential barriers in a workplace. So you're constantly checking things out based on all of those shields that you've had to use through you throughout your entire life. So when we talk about emotional tax, we're really talking about how much energy are, are people taking to have to protect themselves, to have to invite, make sure their environment is safe for them. Mm. Uh, so, so that's an aspect of intersectionality. Again, that's getting a lot of, 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 uh, of new feedback. Um, I think on a uh, on a personal level, uh, you know, just in terms of the story, I oh, I, I was so concerned when I started um, working in in a, in a professional capacity after university. I didn't want to be defined as the gay guy who was really good at doing this. <laughs> I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to be the person who was really good at this, who just happens to be of these different elements, and that was hard. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. So yeah, I guess that that for me is the best explanation that I could come up with in terms of intersectionality. It's those different parts of yourself you bring in. Um, uh, I would be very, uh, I'd love to hear Nada's <laughs> uh, experiences in this as well, because I, I can share my own, but, but, but from your background and experience, it, it sounds like you've got some, some great opportunities to share here as well. Thank you. Um... Yeah, lots of thoughts, brain firing on so many different um, levels and kind of happy I didn't actually script anything. <laughs> so, um, so I guess I, for me, intersectionality, so a learning that I've mm -hmm. taken from someone who I consider to be a friend and a mentor is that it's really important in this work and when I say this work, and I mean anti-oppression work, anti-racism work, um, is to be really disciplined in the ways that we use language, recognizing at the same time that language is dynamic and that it's shifting. And so we're always playing catch up with language. So whatever words we're using right now are actually just catching up to realities. And so they'll be out of date as soon as we start to use them. So for that, I guess for when I think of intersectionality, I think about the fact that it really is, a, for me, a framework of critical inquiry. And what I mean by that, it's it's a, a, a a framework for analysis and understanding the ways that um, oppressions based on our social identities and our social identities being, it's not my personality, it's not what the things that I like to do, but the way society and Michael had referred to binaries, right? So the ways that our identities have been constructed and so what it means to be woman in that category of woman in society. Um, mm -hmm. versus man yeah. and it is a binary right and you know we are working against those binaries constantly because they have been socially constructed over as you said centuries and centuries right mm -hmm. and um, but there are power dynamics that are attached to those um, it isn't neutral to be man versus to be woman to be straight to be um, in the LGBTQ2S community, right? Like these are not 
neutral ways of being because the ways they've been constructed in society, there's been particular values attached to power. And that comes, mm -hmm. it brings us back to where we started way at the beginning, which was belonging, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there are particular national myths that are attached to belonging in Canada, to being Canadian, to being a citizen. Um, and we are, uh, you know, as the citizen body, very invested in those myths. And we know what they are, right? We're multicultural, we're accepting, we are the blue berets, we're the peacemakers, we're the environmentalists. We should give ourselves an award for this. Right? Oh, we do. This. Believe me, we do. <laughs> um, so these, these things um, go, you know, define what is belonging and not belonging. Who's the us and who's the them? And what's operating in our workplace is constantly about um, asserting that delineation of who's mm -hmm. us and who's them. And what that indirectly messages to me in the workplace is compliance. You want yeah. to be part of us, then you better not be wearing a scarf on your head. Mm. Um, you better work on the way you speak English because, you know, we all speak English. And when, when people will say accent, it drives me nuts. This is an accent. <laughs> Uh, right so it is um but there's these delineations so when we go back to intersectionality what we want to be thinking about is how these oppressions that exist are co-constructed to shape my reality into my experience and it's not just my oppressions it is also my privileges so I am a cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied, English-speaking, educated woman, alongside the fact that I am immigrant mm -hmm. Muslim woman in the workplace, right? So all of these things, and I think it is very easy for us, and we tend to fall into our oppressions because we um, it's a way to galvanize um, community. You know, this is the way I am harmed. But I am, and I think no matter what, as settlers on this land, um, we need to remember that we are part of a colonial legacy in Canada. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we immigrate, it doesn't matter what the factors that have led to us coming to this land. And oftentimes they are like nobody, you know, what is that line from uh, Warson Shire's poem? Nobody leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. Oftentimes Absolutely. we leave homes, our families have left homes through the generations because staying at home was no longer a possibility. But that does not mean when I arrive on this land that I'm not complicit to the colonization here. So how am I, yes, I am experiencing microaggressions in the work, but I will be able to leverage, um, and I know we're gonna talk about, you know, what now going forward but how do i leverage allyship um camaraderie um when i also stand in my areas of privilege because i don't want to spend my days educating my co-workers about what it means to be muslim what it means to be palestinian i 
but I do have an obligation to actually work on decolonizing my workplace on uh, building understandings around transphobia and homophobia in my workplace because those are areas of privilege for me and so I think it's the key um, construct or or and I I think it's important that we uh, these concepts came through the work of black women <laughs> so when mm -hmm. we talk about intersectionality I mean I know it always sounds obnoxious when people drop the names of academics but I think it's also recognizing that this is the work of Kimberly Crenshaw this is the work of H Patricia Hill Collins and that you know, me as not a Black woman, am benefiting from even having language to talk about my experience. And so the core concepts there are relationality, is the fact that as an entity, I exist in relationship to everything around me. And, and the other core concept, I think, around intersectionality is social justice. So it's important. I think sometimes I hear people use intersectionality as if, as multiple identities that having but that that's not actually what the concept is the concept is about this constructedness of the oppressions and how do we analyze and understand yeah. them because we all have multiple identities even the straight white christian able-bodied heterosexual male <laughs> has multiple identities right and right. so um i think it's it, it's helpful for us to really be always thinking about like so how does this shape my workplace and what does it mean? And the fact that, um, you know, Michael, like you, I, I used to like, why can't you just see me as a person? And at the same time, I don't want to hear colorblindness in the workplace because right. that is a microaggression as well. I mm -hmm. am in this yeah. body and my experience yeah. of this world is in this body. So for you to say to me, and this is something educators will say often, completely nuts. Um, <laughs> I don't care if people are, are blue, pink, or polka dotted. And last I check, there are no pink, blue, unless you're an avatar. There are no pink, blue, <laughs> or polka dotted human beings. But we do have experiences that are attached to our identities because of intersectionality and the way it plays out in our daily life. Very well said. Um, I'll just add to, you know, yeah. as, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about um, the leadership of organizations who are in, that I've dealt with in large cosmopolitan centers, like Vancouver, like Montreal, like Toronto, where um, their experience in their world is in a cosmopolitan bubble, where the uh, microaggressions still exist, uh, however, there is a lot more. Uh, 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 there's there's a lot more um, integration uh, of of individuals because a lot of people who are new to Canada uh, have a tendency to 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 come to new to to larger cosmopolitan areas. But if you look outside of the cosmopolitan areas, um, some of these become so exasperated uh, in terms of the experience, the socialization. To your point, uh, the social norms that exist in cities is so different than the social norms that exist 
in smaller communities across our nation. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever looked, uh, I, I think I mentioned this at a previous event, um, the government of Canada has this, and I'm coming back to what you were saying Ed, about the blue, the blue berets and stuff. Um, Canada has this whole description of this is what the culture is like in Canada. And if you read that, as you've been here for a while, you think to yourself, are you nuts? <laughs> That's not Canadian not at all. Um, we are stretched out across a large, large, large country. We have all sorts of microcultures that are existing at the same time. Um, uh, Canada uh, has multiple identities, much like individuals have multiple identities. And I think um, as, a, as an organization uh, that is mainly housed in Toronto, we benefit from the fact that um, we are in a large, larger multicultural sense. I think organizations that are spread out into small communities have a greater opportunity to pass on to their communities and where they're working in the local way. The learnings that they're getting from from working in larger cosmopolitan centers as well. Wow. Um, so one of the reasons why I chose this topic is, um, yeah, for I I had my own reasons where I felt that there is a need to um, heal some of my and understand really what happened across my four years of being in Canada. Um, so based on some of the things that you highlighted right now in the, this answer about compliance. There is, um, yes, there is a need to comply to the nice, polite and professional culture that I see in Canada. And I've, I am lucky and I'm privileged because both the organizations that I worked with are working within the immigrant space. So they are already, um, you know, the assumption is that they are open to being in a multicultural environment and um, making it easier for immigrants to settle in um, better in their workplace. But I felt that uh, the first three years that I, I became a different person a little bit in the sense that I be, I too became nice. I kind of, um, I would say, I said thank you very often. I said, uh, I'm sorry very often. I, would I was going to say, that we say sorry a lot here. So <laughs> I was, gonna, was waiting for you to say that as well. <laughs> so that naturally happened. Um, and so many times you... You, you're growing as a person, right? So some, some things will benefit you, some things may not, and you get to decide and pick and choose what you want to keep and not. Um, but this is something that I kind of uh, then realized that it's important for us to express our individuality at our workplace. And uh, I'm grateful that the organization that I work in allows for that to happen. Um, and I think that is where... Um, a, me as an immigrant, and maybe I can say that for others as well, is that sense of belonging takes place where you feel, uh, quote unquote, settled in, because since the time you packed your bags, you're always just questioning your move. And are you feeling settled in this job? Is this for you? Is this right or not? Yes or no. So it's it's both the things you comply to the culture, but you also bring in some parts of your individuality. And at the day, uh, at the end of the day, it's it's just about trying to settle in into those multicultural environment because I too I I also don't know what is a Canadian workplace uh, because there are so many cultures involved. So I just had to let this out. But I'll move on to uh, something that Nada you also said: how we use language and the importance of uh, terminologies. So based on some uh, 
research that we did for this podcast, uh, one of my colleagues highlighted me to this uh, book by Ruchika Tulshian. She authored this book called Inclusion on Purpose, an Intersectional Approach to Creating a Culture of Belonging at Work. Uh, She says that she prefers using the term exclusionary behaviors because the micro prefix downplays the harmful effects of the actions on the target and centers the experience on the aggressor. So are we downplaying the impact through the terms that we use to define these behaviors? And I'll probably start with you, Nada, on this. Uh, So, yeah, I... um... You're right. I, I agree. Like language matters. Um, but, you know, I think something that I've come to in the last couple of years is how much we attach um, human uh, behavior language to institutions. So, um you know, microaggressions occur at the interpersonal level, but mm-hmm. they occur in the context of systemic and institutional oppressions. Mm-hmm. Um, they occur in the context of accepted um, discourses, um, representations of people uh, by the media, by our politicians, um, by our educators, by professionals. And so I think I struggle with microaggressions uh, versus exclusionary behavior because I feel like anytime we start to use language that reduces something to an individual, we let the institution off the hook. And so um, you're right. It is. There's nothing micro about it. And I know, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's appropriate now to talk about the impact of microaggressions on individuals. But I think, you know, when you look at some of the work that's been done out there, um, there there's like different stages when you encounter microaggressions, right? So it's like you, okay, this one I did write down. So I do want, because I (laughs) don't want to mess up other people's uh, work by misrepresenting it, but yeah, so you first hear it. (laughs) And so there's the perception of the incident, right? And then there's the uh, reaction and the interpretation and then the consequences. And that's what happens when you encounter uh, a microaggression. And, you know, Michael has been using the slow drip, right? Is that the uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, effect? Because it's happening constantly. So in each of those, there is an incredible amount of mental energy that is expended, right? Because you begin by like, what did I just hear? And then you spend a whole lot of time gaslighting yourself because you are (laughs) questioning whether what you heard is what you think you heard. And if it, and then there's the whole, is that intended in that way, right? This person is nice. This person brings cookies to work. This person (laughs) has asked me about my children. So the fact that they, you know, constantly ask me if I'm hot under my headscarf and isn't it child abuse that I'm fasting 
Um, you know, those... can I offer? <laughs> can I offer an, a, 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 an example of exactly what you just described? Please. Um, yeah. So um, I was working for a, a very uh, male-dominated uh, organization, hetero male-dominated organization, and um, I. Uh, these I was wearing these boots and the boots that I had I'd moved across the country for this role boots that I had were from a, an environment that were not made for <laughs> this one but the only boots I had and they were I used to use them for riding on a scooter uh and the boss that I had that I was working for at the time uh, came by my desk in an open office environment and said oh you're why why are you still wearing those fairy boots and 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 first of all it's so funny as you were describing the process of hearing like trying to figure it out I, I i went through all of those stages because i was going huh maybe this term is like a really specific term for this industry that i just don't know of because there's no possible way he could have just said that mm. and i'm trying to process this and i'm going like so so sorry what what do you mean he goes you know you know fairy boots uh, and, and I still, I'm still thinking, yeah, this is the person who basically hired me <laughs> and is supporting my work and has actually been quite nice to me. But so, and then he's, he goes, you know, fairy boots, and he swings his hand down in this, you know, very, uh, very uh, uh, sort of typical homophobic kind of pass of, of what a gay man's hand is, is doing. And to which I was like, oh my God, he, he, he actually said that and meant it not just in a closed office but in an open office environment anyway so that was that was um that was that was an experience anyway i'm sorry to interrupt you but you just you just triggered a a really um topical uh thought process that that i went through through as well right and then what happens in that moment is um you know, I, I, I think it is important that we also understand what are the physical implications of having these experiences, right? Yeah. Like sometimes I get a little bit frustrated when I hear people try to explain away oppression. <laughs> I think of right. it as explaining it away using biology or using psychology. Uh, but I do think want I think there is usefulness and again this is where it's about being really disciplined in mm -hmm. think understanding when you encounter um, an incident where like the one that you're describing Michael right away we go into our bodies our sympathetic and parasympathetic sy systems are kicking exactly. in right so we are in hijack in that moment and when yeah. you are yeah. in hijack um, it means that your like cognitive processes are offline, right? Your prefrontal <laughs> cortex is now offline, totally. yeah. right? And um, so on the one hand, think about being constantly in that state. I'm walking into the workplace every day with the expectation I'm being vigilant and scanning mm. um, when this harm yeah, exactly. is going to come up. So yeah. I am constantly in that fight or flight mode or right. freeze or yeah. fawn because there's all these right. different forms, right? But like I am in, I am basically in hijack all the, all the time, which means if my prefrontal cortex is not online, how can I possibly be doing my best work? Right. How can I possibly be performing at my full ability? Because we know that, you know, those 
um, modes of existence in our mind, which are evolutionary, are intended not to solve calculus problems. They are about protecting us. And then it has an impact on our different uh, hormonal levels. So our cortisol levels are messed up as a result yeah. of it, which has long-term implications for our well-being in terms of our blood pressure, in terms of our heart health, in terms of our sleep patterns. So when we think, so when you, this is why I get, I struggle with, okay, microaggression, micro meaning it happens in the moment and then it's gone. No. Um, and, but exclusionary behavior also doesn't really quite capture it because think about the fact that you have, you know, Preet, when you say I'm shifting into these modes of being in the office so mm -hmm. that I don't stand out, so mm -hmm. that I kind of blend in and I'm seen as part of the us. But there's all this other hidden stuff that is happening in your body that quite honestly, until friends come to your house and stage an intervention that you need time off of work because you are not well, which we oh. know happens to people, yes. um, that it is, um, there are implications that are not obvious. And these are, uh, the word behavior, I think, lets us leads us to believe that there isn't a systemic piece, but there is because who has been hired into this workplace? Right. Um, mm -hmm. What are their dispositions and their worldviews? And um, what happens when these things take place? Because I know, Michael, as you said, in an open office, and I, as I have experienced in meetings, you're not the only one hearing it. Bingo. Right? Exactly. And so what are p other people doing? And, you know, that's like, it's one thing to look down and dart your eyes um, when the boss is handing out assignments and you don't want to do it. It's a different thing when there's stuff like this that is happening and everybody looks down. Um, and yeah. then there's this, you know... It, it is it does me no good if you come to me after the meeting or after the incident in private and say to me, oh, that really was terrible. I'm sorry you experienced that. I mean, that's a step because right. at least you are acknowledging and I'm not going to be asking myself, am I nuts to even be thinking this? Yeah. Um, but it does me no good in private, right? So um, thinking about like, Sorry, Michael, I hate unconscious bias and I hate. I know everybody does. <laughs> everybody does because, because it they it it doesn't it doesn't stick. Okay. Harvard Business Review has done a multiple studies saying that these types of trainings don't stick. You know why they don't stick? It's because you're doing it once and you're going, oh, that's nice. And it's a checkbox exercise. That's it. Yes. If if it's a checkbox exercise, no, it's not going to work. It's like anything, and that's why, you know, I, as I think I said, you know, if you go to if you think you're going to get a great body going to the gym once, ain't going to work. You got to go back again and again and again and again, and you got to like build. And that's how that's how we we build it. The other piece I just wanted to mention, and I love the neurological piece because I've done a lot of work in my uh, mindfulness and neurology as well. So everything you're saying, like yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I love it. Uh, one of the pieces that rec I, I recall is um, is the fact that apparently with the um, you know when, now that we have a lot of um, MRIs that we can do on the brain on brain scanning there are opportunities for people um, 
to see what happens when we do experience microaggression. So I used to call it the cringe factor. If you're having the cringe factor, something's wrong. And um, what the studies have proven is when someone says you've hurt my feelings, basically you're actually activating the same part of your brain that you experience physical pain from mm -hmm. it's there's no difference so so when like I feel pain in my stomach when when people do stuff like that to me it, it like it's really centralized in a very specific area but it's the same part of my brain that's processing what it feels like to be excluded which is where a lot of this research uh, has come from in terms of it be feeling included or feeling feeling excluded um I'd love this space I I, I think uh, we've got so much to learn from it in terms of how we interpret and deconstruct some of these issues that we're talking about today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think we've uh, we've moved into the impact topic as well. And there are some overlaps with identifying the situation. So I'll go back to uh, the example and that situation. Thank you for sharing your personal experience, Michael. So going back to some of those um, how do, how can you respond to those situations in the moment? Uh, firstly, I personally feel that uh, maybe it would be nice to go after it happened and not in the moment, or maybe is it again me being too nice? Um, I don't know. How do you respond to these situations without getting defensive or you know instigating shame towards uh, the person who made that remark or made you feel uncomfortable or who made that insulting comment? what can you do uh, to call it out in a respectful way? The reason why I'm asking this is also um, as a working woman, I would like to kind of, you know, move forward in my career. And I don't want to be known as a troublemaker, as a difficult person to work with. Um, there is a way to call out these behaviors and what is the right way of without putting anybody down. I, I don't know if that balance can be achieved it's very difficult but if there are any uh, strategies around it or yeah that would be great to know so we'll start off with you Nada, and then we'll move to michael okay um so i guess i'm going to preface my statements with a couple of things uh first of all um when people say uh i don't feel safe right now because you're calling them out on something. <laughs> um, I think we need to remind ourselves, and this is a hard thing to internalize, um, the experience of being told that you have um, said something that is problematic, that you are engaging in behavior that's problematic, um, is not worse than the actual experience of the person who has been through it, okay? So I think a lot of times we hear, so we've, we'll have, and I know, Michael, if you've done any trainings, you've you've heard this in the room, I don't feel safe right now. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> that that is actually, there's a difference between uh, comfort and safety. And oh, I think yeah. we need to remember Fantastic that, discrimination. Yeah. Um, there's a difference. Like our society is one which perpetuates a culture of whiteness. And in, in like embedded in whiteness are many things. I think people think like whiteness, oh, okay, so you're just talking about 
skin color. You're just talking about race. No, whiteness involves all other identities as well, because it is about gender identity, sexual orientation. It is about religion. It is about language. So in whiteness, comfort is an, ex an and it's in every workplace, right? We are working, we are, uh, it is not just an identity. It's uh, a position, like a social uh, location uh, of privilege and power. And it is an ideology. And part of that ideology is the expectation of comfort for white people, right? Straight, yeah. straight, yeah. white, male, English-speaking, able-bodied. And so anytime that comfort is shaken, there is a fallback, I'm not safe, okay? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we need, to, we need to shake that up a bit. And so if we are, I don't believe that the solution forward, and I know that, you know, Preet, you want to talk about what could we, what can I do right now in this moment yes. if I'm the person experiencing it? And I'm just yes. going to pin that for a second because I don't actually believe it's your responsibility. Um, I believe that the institution has an obligation to create workspaces and cultures that actually adhere to the obligations of the Ontario Human Rights Code, which means that there is no discrimination in the workplace, right? And if you believe that, then it, it has to affect my hiring practices. <laughs> it has to affect the, the uh, policies I have in place. Um, and I know a lot of times the fallback is then, oh my gosh, I, you know, uh, my, if I, if I misstep, if I say something, if I ask someone where are yes. they from, that I'm going to lose my job. And, yeah. but that, you know, there is going to be a growing, growing pains in a workplace mm -hmm. as we actually change, because the same way that we tell little kids in schools that learning is uncomfortable, you're going to fall down, yeah. you're going to make mistakes, but you're going to have to continue that if we as adults cannot actually embody that in the way that we function, then how can we possibly expect that from our children? And so we need to begin. And I, I agree that these things can be compared to the coffee pot spilling on someone, but we live in a society that is um, at the intersection of all of these histories so it is not um, a surprise that all of us, every single one of us, is a product of that society and, and has taken in all of those things. And so if I'm not acti actively interrupting these, um, if we want to call them biases, that we withhold hold within us, then we are going to be complicit in them, either through our silence or yeah. by... Uh, inadvertently repeating them. And so then the other only other thing that I would want to add, and I, you can see this is an area that I'm really passionate about, is, <laughs> is the um, uh, when we go through these trainings as they, um, which I agree, they they don't stick. But whatever is learning, professional learning that is in the workplace has to involve practicing. 
Um, okay. So when you are, you know, when you want to be a social worker, <laughs> you have to learn how to like practice with how you have these conversations and you use scripts, right? And it feels very stilted um, mm. to whether to be able to have these conversations automatically. But this is the same thing too. We need that the professional learning actually involves scripted uh, practice of when things occur, what you can say. People need yeah. to learn how to respond and not necessarily the person who's been targeted, but all the other witnesses. Again, like just as an educator, we yeah. I'm going to use an example from school. We know that if the bystanders in a bullying situation, actually yeah. one person stood up, right. that the bullying would stop. Right. Mm. We know that. And we tell yeah. that to kids. That's what we try to to teach our children. Right. Our children, mm. whether they are the, our biological children, our children in the classroom, the ones in our families, we yes. are trying to ensure that they are not silent bystanders. And so we need to also be adhering to that as adults. And then mm. um, the the complaint process, the complaint process in organizations is what actually results in people feeling like I don't want to be a troublemaker because we know the complaint process doesn't work it 99.9% .9 of the time it's about protecting the institution and not about being in service of the individual so I'm going to stop there you can ask me more about yeah. complaints but I have a lot of opinions on that one too <laughs> That's so important, right? I mean, you've explained uh, what uh, as people, individuals in that situation can do, uh, the bystanders, um, the people facing it, the people saying things. But there's also this question of, uh, okay, so then what do employers, uh, what can employers do to address these apart from the training, which we are not so fond of? Uh, how can you tweak behaviors? How can you make it safe? Uh, what can business leaders do to make it safe for people to point it out when they see it? What are these policies that we are talking about? Or what would you want to change then if you're saying something that is going on that is not working out? What is it that uh, that would change at an institutional, um, you know, broader organizational level that would uh, make it easier for these behaviors to not exist or even when they do to know how to talk about them and how to, um, you know, yeah, learn from them, basically. So I, I, I'm happy to pop yes. in on this one. Sure. Um, so there's so much context involved with your question. Uh, let me tackle a few of them. Um, so first of all, organizational norms um, are embedded in an organization to such deep extent, depending upon the age of the organization. So some organizations are over 100 and 150 years old. Do they have deep, deep, deep organizational norms? Absolutely. And those organizational norms will hang on so incredibly rigidly to people, no matter how much turnover you have, they have been built into the culture of the organization. So, so uh, they, the, to, I'll, I'll give you an example. In one organization, I tried to launch uh, a, um, a very specific employee resource group. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in this organization, part of the organization was really up for it. 
but I went on tour to different locations to try to, to get people to join. Not one person showed up to the meeting oh. simply because by showing up to that meeting, you may have been part of that community. And even though I had people come up to me afterwards and say, I would have joined, but, right? So, so the first context I'll add is the organizational norms in the business are um, needed to be diagnosed in a really specific way for you to be able to understand the journey that that organization is on to which you can then ascribe a corrective measure to which you can look at some of these behaviors uh, to see. And I'm not saying they're not inclusive, they've got inclusive factors, of course, mm. but where I try to position executives is they just want to fix things. So engagement survey is a great example. People can have engagement surveys. They see red lines. They go, oh, we got to fix that. we got to fix that. we got to fix that. Mm -hmm. But what people rarely do is look at the strengths of their organizations. Maybe there are ways that we could have those behaviors not just focused in on those powerful straight white guys, but maybe there are attributes in that strength that we can expand across the organization. Now, dealing with some of those cultural norms can be really challenging. Um, you know, let's add to the, this this flavor. Not not only are executives uh, being they set the tone for the organization. So getting your executives out in front yes. is incredibly important. Um, I'm very fortunate to work in an organization that the executives are out in front. Um, in fact. Um, the unconscious bias training, which I've launched yet again to, to the extent to which we'll have repeated exposure, as I was mentioning, we started that with our board, um, our, our board of trustees. Uh, and, and that was a very intentional choice and sequencing the, that experience across levels of leadership, including our executive and our CEO, and then VPs and directors tells everyone in the organization, this is important and actually addresses on a, on a wide organizational side how important this is. On an individual level, I'm working in a service capacity down the pipeline, maybe I'm in an IT uh, role, I see this. And, and the repetition to which I see this actually maybe then changes the way I look at my own behaviors to say, well, if this is what's important to the organization and I want my career to grow, maybe I need to adjust some of those behaviors. So there's some institutional ways you can impact it through the influence of your, your leaders. The other places that I would say, and, and this comes back to our human rights code, um, is uh, really ensuring that your organization's um, uh, policies uh, are, are reviewed because there are systemic components of policies that people don't even know are, are in there. Um, you know, bona fide occupation requirement, you hear that oftentimes in, in roles, and bona fide occupation requirements can be um, misinterpreted to be, and I'll take disability for example, well, you have to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Really? <laughs> do I? Because technology has changed the fact that I can do those things that you used to call bona fide occupational requirements. And I'm, that's just one example of how these are uh, uh, hiring practices. Uh, uh, if, I, if I can ask all the listeners here, if you hear a hiring manager say, I want someone who hits the ground running, disrupt that right away. Um, I have a great speaker out of the University of uh, Calgary, Daniel Pierce, and they are a 
Paralympian basketball person, and, and they said, "I want to hear someone say, I want someone who can hit the ground rolling," <laughs> and oh. and I love that expression. But I, I guess all of that to say uh, to 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 look at these uh, microaggressions, these feelings of exclusion that people experience in an organization. My focus has always been how are the leaders of the organization representing the culture that we want promoted and demonstrated throughout the organization? That for me is pretty much the linchpin mm -hmm. to, to drive the change. I have been in organizations where it's been more performative at that level. People see right through that like so incredibly clearly and transparently that uh, it's almost worse to be performative. You're almost driving your culture to be more, whoa, uh, because they see the fakes on, right? Um, it's a really difficult task. Uh, I, I, I bow to anyone in the organization trying to make these types of changes because it is not easy, especially if you're in these uh, older, uh, longer term organizations. Um, I'll just end it there. I think I want to just touch on when you're saying about um performative um so i think sometimes and we're seeing this a lot in public sector spaces in particular um where the hiring um becomes that oh we're just going to have leaders now um, who embody particular identities, and therefore we are changing. But what those leaders are experiencing um, is guaranteed to lead to burnout. Um, it's not and tokenism, right? It's not sustainable um, because they are being expected, like as we talked earlier to comply with a very limited delineation of what leader is and how leader functions. Plus, at the same time, they are the one that everybody in the room turns to on anything that has to do with anything related to that identity, right? Yeah. And that is not a sustainable, <laughs> nor is it an effective approach to changing organizational cultures. And so, um, I think that, you know, uh, leaders the um, who have traditionally been in those roles, like there also needs to be a recognition that it means giving up some of your power and right. nobody wants to give that up, right? Yeah. So it means, doesn't mean like, okay, we're all gonna stay on this committee and then we're gonna bring in one additional person who is going to be this body. And so therefore we fixed everything. Yeah. No, it means that 10 of us are gonna need to step off <laughs> and need to right. create a right. new process yeah. for yeah. new people to come up. And we are then going to put ensure that the resources and the opportunity is there for this the, the new body of people to mm. enact change. Because a lot of times what happens is even when we do start to like, okay, we're going to create a strategy. We're going to create an yes. anti-whatever strategy, fill in whatever identity you want in there. But we are going to ensure that it is words on a paper um, that we're going to then show publicly. But then there isn't really anything that is happening within that is going to ensure that that strategy actually is implemented and changes anything on the ground. 
Yes, thank you for saying that because we come to know when we are a diversity hire, <laughs> but <it's, laughs> we do. Uh, it's important to know what the what are the tools provided by the organization for us to um, you know do our job well and enable that environment. Um, I'll just jump back to some of the. Um, I think we we spoke about the impact at the individual level. No. Uh, both of you pointed out uh, what would uh, the, the effects of it on uh, on a personal level uh, psychological biological um, is there anything um, can you take me through uh, impact at, at a very professional level maybe for that particular individual um, how how would they affect immigrant professionals who are trying to integrate into their canadian workplace at a uh, professionally speaking and uh so at an individual and an organizational level how would it affect the business if uh, they are not able to retain or better integrate uh immigrant professional and what would it mean for uh, me and my career if i'm unable you know like the long term effects of those repetitive behaviors how would that impact uh, my professional career if you can I know it's a very loaded question like there are two aspects to it so if you want to kind of combine an answer um sorry for putting it like this i think i'm just too engrossed in what to <laughs> trying to break it down and uh, relate my experience and there are right. lots of overlaps here um so impact at an individual level for the professional and impact at an organizational level uh, as well Would you like me to start? Yes, anybody. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it is a, a large question. There, you know, before I start on that, there are just one or two things I wanted to mention um, that Nada was speaking to that really um, struck me as well. Um, the one thing you said is that individuals who who represent a minority group all of a sudden become the educators for everyone else. And I have to say that is the largest complaint I hear uh, from people that when I'm speaking to them, I am not your educator. Like uh, I'm not your single point of education in this space. Uh, you know, the internet, it's big, use it. <laughs> you you hear, I, I hear that quite a bit uh, from, from, from individuals who think that what this question about, you know, I want to learn from you, it almost oh, yeah. reconfirms this feeling of being an other, an outsider, uh, a not belonging. And, and that in, in and of itself is, is a microaggression um, insofar as the individual doesn't even realize that they are performing, performing in that space as well. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention, and, and we may get to this as well, is uh, the implications for an organization bending over backwards in almost a performative way without actually dealing with some of the core issues creates this zero-sum game attitude with straight white males in the organization who suddenly think that, oh, now my career is at jeopardy because like all you're going to do is promote people who have you know diverse backgrounds, so forth and so on. And I, uh, it's a struggle. It's a struggle with these individuals' binary thinking. Again, it's winners and losers, right? Mm. Not equity which is where we're trying to take the seesaw from giving privilege to one group and we're not flipping it giving all the privilege to another group we're trying to even out the privilege between those groups and that's a challenge so um 
so so the impact uh, impact on the individual. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm going to talk about the organizational impact, and and maybe now okay. maybe I can offer yourself to do the the the, the professional impact, sure. an organizational impact of the the consistent uh, uh, impact for is first of all the turnover. Your yeah. um, one of the things that I've encountered a lot is the difference between diversity and representation. People think, please excuse this expression, bums and seats. They, 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 I can walk through a room and I can see it. All of a sudden you're diverse, right? Mm -hmm. Even though, as pre you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, I have to assimilate, I have to change those think those thinkings, those rich, valuable thinking experiences that I could bring to add value to the organization, I have to switch that down to fit in. Uh, so, so that, so, so as an organization, by not adjusting your behaviors to be more inclusive and accepting, and you know, the indigenous community has a great expression. They say we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, <laughs> and I love that because that's what organizations should be accepting and, and realizing is listening mm. to what individuals are saying is is such a powerful way of beginning that understanding and and that appreciation um the the other component i will say it, which is in play is that if you look at the people who are making the decisions in the organization tend to be older white uh people with privilege and as Nada was saying, you don't give up that privilege very easily. And so even though you know it's the right thing to do, sometimes it's they're they're not they're not one hundred percent behind that. Um, so so the 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 opportunity to have innovation is thwarted. The opportunity to have uh, to res to have. Uh, 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 you know, we had this great resignation that happened. There's a lot of turnover in the market. People, the the employer-employee relationship in terms of power, using the, the power difference has moved to the side of the job seeker now because there's so many organizations now. That we, you know, that war on talent has turned into a true war. Um, so, so you have less of an opportunity to attract individuals because guess what? There's also more opportunity online for people to figure out what you really are. We used to have this thing called the corporate veil, which would hide all of our bad news. Well, that corporate veil has lifted mm. thanks to areas like uh, Glassdoor and Indeed and all sorts of areas where people have that opportunity to learn more about what's really going on in an organization. So um, to the extent that an organization can have talented individuals offering innovation, offering their personal insights to add value to the organization that is diminished with this great opportunity that Canada's bringing in 460,000 uh, immigrants every year now, uh, all of them bringing in insights and, 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 and wanting to be successful. I mean, they've to you mentioned as you mentioned that uh, they've left the mouth of the shark and and to to come to canada at, for and and they're all bringing in this level of resilience and understanding and professionalism that uh, organizations are missing out on if uh, if they are continuing to allow cultural norms to predicate their future and sometimes that four-year vision or that one-year vision in terms of how you're reaching your operational goals by, quote unquote, hitting a ground running yeah. in my perception as a leader. I'll just 
pass the baton over <laughs> to that and you can talk about the individual side as well yeah thank you thank you for that yeah um so many did you want to jump in Preet no, I just wanted to kind of uh, summarize. So you spoke about uh, innovation over there, um, talking more about your culture, being a little more transparent about your culture as an organization. Um, that would help um, immigrants know what to expect and how to be. And that, that's that's really helpful. Sorry, I'll move to you, Nada, for the, for the personal impact. Uh, professionally speaking sorry okay I'm so just... I never answer the question right so <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna... <laughs> I want to as Michael was talking I you know um there's a, a phrase that we used to use with my kids in a classroom back in the day and uh it was when you're used to privilege that oppression that um equity feels like oppression right so I think that we need to know our histories, right? I'm a big proponent of knowing. So take a look at Canada's immigration laws and why did they change at the time that they changed in a post-war era? What was actually the intention behind it? I think, again, because we're so invested in myths about who we are as a nation and what does it mean to be here, that we accept, like, well, Canada has a multicultural act. Well, why was the multicultural act actually put in place in the first place? Um, it was basically to recover whiteness in a post-war era, right? We know what had happened in Europe. Uh, and and so it was really important that we can't continue down this path of exclusion and this path of saying, oh, no, no, only uh, people from this part of the world are allowed to come to Canada. OK, so that was part of it, plus the economic realities that people from Europe were no longer coming to Canada for work. So we mm -hmm. have to open up, you know, open up the doors. Right. Yes. Knowing that history helps me as an individual like I know I'm not talking about systemic pieces I want to talk about the individual but understanding that history also helps me to understand what is playing out for me in my day-to-day -day life because that is as you know when Michael says there are organizations that are 150 years old so mm -hmm. they're a part of that history and that's why the culture in the workplace is the culture in the workplace right begrudgingly right the rules changed it wasn't exactly it, it was not because we want to be inclusive exactly. Exactly. it's because we had to become inclusive for multiple reasons right can, but can i just add sure, uh, that the, the employment equity act in canada is yeah. what part of that uh, you know it's so funny you've got so many large corporations who are federally juris in federal jurisdiction who are like proud to say we've been doing this for a while no i'm sorry you were legislated to do it and you got a step ahead of most other organizations who are now figuring out that oh this is the right thing to do but because you were forced to do it now you can step up and say you know oh are we ready anyway sorry I just no, reflected no, on for sure 100 and that i mean we know that a lot of times when shift does occur it is the term i guess in some of the literature is interest convergence it is not just because we just you know we saw the light and now we're going to do it there is 
there is a purpose and I know it makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist and it's not <laughs> it's just understanding like why are we at this moment when all of a sudden though the institution the history and the individuals with all the power are now like oh you know what no we're gonna have this thing we're going to have this strategy we're going to it isn't just because all of a sudden they woke up and saw the light right, right. there there right. is a bigger purpose behind it and so wow. when the individual is uh, navigating and what is the um, professional impact well we, we see it because you know, we have this expression, which I also am not a fan of, but the expression of the model minority, right? And that comes from the individual coming into the workplace and feeling that um, they uh, they are like, well, okay, again, there's a history behind it, right? You're going to be like, why did we get this girl on here? She just wants to no, keep no, teaching us history. But the fact <laughs> that the, the, you know, we uplift particular groups, hmm. certain groups have been uplifted historically so that we can continue to pathologize uh, and demonize other groups. So therefore, if you are, you know, you are um, Asian, South Asian, you are, mm -hmm. would be seen in the model minority, you're hard workers, um, yes. you are uh, polite, you keep your head down, you're not troublemakers, you know, you make an effort to learn English. So as opposed to whoever the other is, right? right? And again, within that, there is also a very clear delineation of what is meant, right? You're not, we're not talking about the ones that are Muslim and the ones that are gay and the ones that are women and the one, no, like there's a, also, we still adhere to the hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, when I'm coming into a workplace and I feel like I need to keep my head down, um, yes. I need to put my best work forward, agree with everything, not disagree. How am I becoming complicit with this? Um, legacy of the model minority, where when so, you know so and so comes into the workplace and asks, "Where's a prayer space?" and I'm like, "Well, you know, why does so and so have to like make so much trouble, or why do they need to?" So I want to differentiate myself from them because mm -hmm. I'm not asking for that. I I learned to adjust to this workplace. We're in Canada now. Oh my God, learning right. to adjust. Oh God. You know, so why can't they, why can't they yeah. bring, you know, macaroni and cheese for lunch <laughs> to the workplace? <laughs> why can't they, like I did, I uh, paid my dues to get to where I am. And so I know when you're asking me, what are the impacts on the individual? Maybe we're thinking about like, what about your career projection? But this is part of career projection, right? What are the things that happen to us as communities to survive in these spaces? And what mm. does it mean for everyone else? What does it mean for our children? What does it mean for those who are coming after us into these spaces? And so on the one hand, you know, if I am um, an, a racialized woman in the workplace and I have now risen to a leadership role, any uh, 
racialized person doesn't matter <laughs> what their history their experience is i can the expectation is i will be their mentor and that is an expectation by the people above me right like i can mm -hmm. i should be able to mentor them so on top of everything i'm doing so then i'm also resentful right yes, yes, um, yes. and then i am paid my dues i've had to i have put up with microaggressions i had to give up pieces of myself to exist in this space yes. so as a result I am now going to be harder on those people. I am going to um, not necessarily, like I'm going to play, I'm going to reproduce whiteness because I've had to, to be in this, to rise in the ranks. I had to do some of that, right? And sometimes I think we, the expectation is, well, when so when we get to a certain level, then we'll be able to do the hard work, then we'll be able to challenge the status quo. But it actually gets harder the, the higher you go, because you become numerically fewer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And so are you as the only woman, racialized woman, immigrant woman sitting at that table? Are you going to be the one to say, Mm, I don't I don't think this policy is actually working. I don't actually think this practice is working. I think that we have a culture problem in our organization. No, you're not going to. So the professional impact, there is the impact in terms of how do you what happens in the moment of the incident. And I think yes. we've touched on that. And yes. we know that burnout happens. People end up changing jobs a lot, which doesn't yes. actually necessarily have uh, raises a lot of questions for future employers. Why are you bouncing around? It's because um, it's about saving my soul. I have to bounce around because I can't stay in a place without the trauma of being in that space impacting me. And if you stay, what are the compromises that you have to make? And what does that mean in the long term, not only for you, but for the culture of the organization in terms of it, is it changing or is it actually going to stay the same and use you as an example of why our organization is not a problem? Look, so-and-so is in the position of senior partner so mm -hmm. she can make it work why can't the rest of you why can't the rest of you just you know get along with us us yeah yeah so and, sorry go ahead michael uh, i just wanted to add because i've seen this in so many different organizations when the the the, the minority the historically um, marginalized individual group individual representation moves up the pipeline lots of you know it's a flow right so there's lots of people in that flow the ones who are managing to move up are the ones who the owners of the flow which are the historical white guys with that culture are saying oh this person needs to be more of x y and z for them to survive because i know it's really hard here so only those people who represent our culture elements over and above what a straight white guy would do are the mm -hmm. ones who are going to move up the, the, the ladder to which at the top of the house you get individuals who can be like just like raw raw culture white guy da 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 because that's what they've had to do to get there so mm. to your point Ned, about you know asking these individuals to mentor like ooh, ooh, you know a lot of organizations have sponsorship 
programs yes. now. And I would say that Sun Life does a really good job. Uh, they've their senior, well, their their CEO, Jacques Boulet, has made some really interesting decisions about creating trust in the organization. And one of the ways that they have their leadership is now working is each executive has, I think, a I, please forgive me if I'm mistaken, there's something like three specific sponsees that they have to have in the organization and still a lot of controversies about what this represents as well, that zero-sum game thing comes up for, for people in, in other roles as well. But all of that to say that um, the intention of representation at the top of the house has been mired by the flow through mechanisms of where that leadership pipeline was created, how it's being uh, manifested, and, um, and, and we need to really look at that pipeline to ensure that these practices of discriminating towards people who will drive the culture in marginalized groups needs to be disrupted completely. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting off my soapbox now, but that <laughs> just really rings true for me what you said. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's the, um, so as uh, racialized immigrant women who are entering into the workplace and when we see those individuals in those higher roles, mm -hmm. um, they become the lightning rod of our frustration and they become the lightning rod for our angst about the culture of the organization. And I think it's really important that we not lose sight of what Michael is saying as who owns this process, yes. who is making the decisions, because then it's all because I think we inside of us feel, and I know I felt this, you should know better. You you know you are in the same body. You but but really my my anger is misplaced. My frustration is misplaced. Um, we are all like fighting our own battles and trying to survive uh, and and moving forward. I don't agree with causing harm to others so that I can rise. However. Um, we need to recognize the institutional and systemic pieces and not reduce it to individuals. We do mm -hmm. hold individuals accountable. Like we don't lose sight of the fact like, oh, it's just the organization is racist, so I can't help it. No, <laughs> there has <laughs> to be accountability. However, um, we also need to see things, you know, in more nuanced and complex ways. Wow, there's a lot of, uh, oh my God, this is, yeah, I'm just learning a lot from what you're saying about how this can affect, um, but that that puts less pressure on me, although I, I would, yes, definitely want to be more mindful and accountable. Um, in terms of uh, equipping ourselves, is there uh, at an individual level, if I want to be more accountable, do you have any uh, book recommendations, any materials, uh, leaders, business leaders I can follow who talk more about this topic for my personal learning um, as a working professional, just to be more mindful in my interpersonal uh, relations at the workplace. So I, I'll, I'll leave it to uh, maybe Michael, you can <laughs> do you have any if not sure uh well i i, I make i can start off with um some of the resources that i rely upon so I, I think i've mentioned a few of them uh catalyst organization has 
I love the research piece. Um, and the research piece really, for me, what that allows me to do is take numerical quantified research to my executives, no matter where I am, to say, the study shows, uh, and, and you can't dispute numbers. Um, well, you can, but but when they're so, uh, Catalyst has been around for 60 years doing this experience on, um, so, so that would be one of them. Um, I would say, uh, I do uh, follow um, individuals that are more on the EQ side or the emotional intelligence side, um, such as Brene Brown uh, talks a lot about how behaviors and inclusive behaviors on an individual la uh, layer uh, uh, area can really uh, support it. Um, good old Simon Sinek talks a lot about um, as or what what, chal what challenges organizations have in terms of their old style thinking. So these are really, I mean, both of them are 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 privileged white individuals talking about those pieces as well. So um, uh, the, the, there, there's actually a, um, a, another individual, Daisy Lovelace, she's a, she's a doctor who does uh, courses on LinkedIn learning. For anyone who's got access to LinkedIn learning, there's a wonderful course called Talking About Culturally Sensitive Issues. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend that. It's about 55 minutes, well, well worth it. A lot of what I've said about the dripping tap, the teapot, that comes out of her work specifically as well. So I, I would recommend those. Great, great, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nada, do you have any other recommendations, toolkits, guides for us folks to learn more about this topic? Um, I think if you're a, um, you know, a white leader and you want to understand a bit more, I would go into some of Ann Bishop's work around white allyship. Um, I know you know, Robin D'Angelo is is more yeah. popular these days, but I think yeah. some of that foundational work is helpful. And I would say that um, I I think connection to community I, mm. bef before work <laughs> before books um, I think is relationship to community is important. Um, I think that. People are telling us what they want. We just need to actually be listening. Um, and I think as a leader, not to lose sight of the uh, positional power that you hold. Like I've heard people come into rooms and be like, okay, well, just tell me what are the problems here? Nobody's going to tell you. Um, you know, like people are trying to protect themselves and survive. They're going to tell you nothing. Exactly. Um, so, you know, you need to actually uh, figure out what is going to um, enable uh, employees to uh, share uh, mm -hmm. their experiences. I think it's important. I think we live in a and I, I can't believe I'm going to say this in a, in a you know, work force kind of <laughs> conversation, but we live in a capitalist society, right? Yep. So we, uh, unfortunately, therefore, it is very extractive. Mm -hmm. um, and so even when we are in relationship oh. to community, reciprocity is essential. 
So if I just see like, oh, you know what? I go to community so that you can give me information so that I can do something, but I'm not going to do anything really. I'm just going to listen. And then I'm going to come back and tell you, here's some things that you can use uh, to convince your people (laughs) to to Mm -hmm. come alongside. I mean, that continues to be an extractive relationship, right? right? So when we enter into relationship with community, whether the community is within the workplace or the community at large, that it needs to be reciprocity, needs to be the foundation of that relationship. And we need to be accountable to the commitments that we're making. So if I am having, like nothing is worse, I'm just even as an individual, to have someone um, share the pain that they have experienced with, um, you know, someone senior to them and that person, you know, just kind of patting them on back, telling them you're really brave for sharing that and then not doing anything with it. Right. 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 Um, or to then use that in a way as it becomes anecdotal case studies to like, so we can be very extractive by yeah. just repeating the ways that we have historically worked and we need to consider and actually ask um, community, what does what would reciprocity in this relationship look like? You are sharing this with me, you are entrusting me with this, but then what are you, what would it look like if I was honoring this relationship as you would hope it would be. Yeah. And uh, we, um, you know, you, you make all the sense in the world and and, and part of how, uh, one of the, the, the opportunities that organizations have is to create relationships with organizations that support communities in a way that reciprocity is involved. Yeah. So, for instance, CCAB, Canadian Centre for Aboriginal Business, is one of the areas that we have a, a, a long-standing relationship with, too. And we're just about to launch a supplier for diversity program because they have a built-in marketplace. And so one of the ways that we can operationalize that is to, uh, to start intentionally looking for suppliers in that space. Um, there are various different ways that organizations can look to not just being, and again, they use the word performative, but also woke washing is another term that I'm hearing about as well, to really, um, to do the reciprocity involved in not just being involved, but actually participating in the right sizing of what needs to happen for, for, for groups as well. Nice. So not just ticking boxes, but practicing, Correct. Yeah. practicing as much as possible. Exactly. Practicing and learning and then learning and then repetition of all of those behaviors as well. Okay, great. Great. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, I'm very grateful and thankful for your time. Um, and all there was so much that was that is there to learn from this conversation. Um, it's so insightful in so many ways. Um, so it's it, it, it's been a pleasure to have you both on this podcast. Yeah, there's there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to take away. Um, it is a heavy topic in in many ways, but it's interesting because you have chosen so many different perspectives to give us uh, the complex nature of the topic and what can we do 
um, both at individual, organizational level, all of those things. So it's it's a very tricky topic, which you have beautifully uh, spoken about today. And I'm very grateful for that. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was Absolutely. really nice working with you, Michael. And you as well. Thank you for this experience. It, it was, uh, I, 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 my batteries are full. Thank you. Me too. Once again, thank you, Nada and Michael, for sharing your insights and helping our listeners understand the topic better to be more mindful in our day-to-day interactions. If you like this episode, please like, share and leave a review. And please tell us what you want to hear more from us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Triac, T-R-I-E-C, or on LinkedIn at Toronto Region Immigrant Employment Council. Also, if you have an awesome story about your career journey as an immigrant, DEI strategies at your organization, we'd like to hear from you. Thanks for listening. We believe when immigrants prosper, our region prospers.